Welcome to Organizing Ideas. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Our guest today is Lara Maestro. Lara graduated from the Master of Archival Studies and Master of Library and Information Studies with the First Nations Curriculum Concentration at the University of British Columbia in spring 2019. Her thesis for the master's program is entitled Alternative Becomings, Alternative Belongings, Cordillera Case Studies of Records in Context. And we're really excited to talk to her today about her work on knowledge keeping practices and living archives. Yay! Welcome to the pod! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there anything else that you want to add in introduction or anything else about yourself you want to tell listeners before we get into the questions? I can add, I guess, if anyone's curious about what a degree from Slays gets you when you're done and in working life. Like, I do have a day job in records management and privacy, but most of my, like, life's focus is my unpaid volunteer work. So that's um, my community work with Filipino community here, primarily with youth and students. Cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that, because I think it's interesting for people to know that you have that, like both those things going on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe to start us off, how did you come to archival studies, librarianship, record management, data privacy land? What were you doing before and what made you decide to go to grad school? I did a degree in sociology for my undergrad and uh, I took a break. I did a bunch of things. I thought maybe I'd be like a conservationist. So I took like art history I resisted going into librarianship for a while, mostly because like I'm a second generation librarian and archivist. Like my mom is also a librarian archivist. She actually graduated from Slays as well. So I was like, I want to, you know, be my own person, (laughs) follow my own path. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. But then the more that I kind of looked at my own skills and different gaps and needs in my community, it just became more obvious that this was a field where I could really contribute and be of service. So I was like, okay, just get over that and apply and go <laughs> go to grad school. And then I did. <laughs> so you wrote a thesis for your master's. What is it about? <laughs> yeah, really broadly, I guess. It's about how a particular ethno-linguistic community in the Philippines, which is the in the Kalinga province, which is in the Cordillera region, maintain and pass on their cultural memory and their knowledge over time and to other people, other members of their communities. But inside that, there's a lot of other questions that I I knew I wasn't going to get to answer, but that I wanted to, like, put out there as, like, thinking pieces. So... There's a lot of rhetorical questions about, you know, what does it mean to call something a record or not? Like, what possible contributions could thinking about this stuff have to our areas of study here, where it's, like, mostly this, like, Western Eurocentric archival tradition? Like, all of that stuff I dealt with, but mostly it was, like, centered around these 
communities that I visited. The Cordillera is, it's it's a region, so it's, it's very mountainous. It's in the north of Luzon, which is itself like the northernmost province of the Philippines. Luzon has the second largest population of indigenous peoples in the Philippines, um, apart from Mindanao, which is in the south. And in the Cordillera region, there are several provinces and these provinces are like roughly correspond to ethno-linguistic groups within those ethnic linguistic groups there are tribes so the tribes that I visited were all in the Kalinga province it was mostly like the Basau, Butbut and Tanglug tribes but then I also there's like a capital city in Kalinga called Tabuk which is the second largest city in the Cordillera, and um, that's actually where the provincial chapter of the CPA was based, so I spent a lot of time there. And the people there weren't necessarily from any of the tribes that I stayed with, but they were from other Kalinga tribes. So the Cordillera as a region, its boundaries came to being like fairly recently as an autonomous region, but even before that, Politically, the tribes within it had been clamoring for recognition as a specific identity, of like a Cordilleran identity. So a lot of the time you'll see the government kind of like hop on to these things later than the people inside them have been thinking about them. So that idea of like a united Cordilleran identity existed before the government decided then to just like make the boundaries of it. And a lot of times, obviously, like, government interests are counter to the interests of the people so there's a lot of there's a lot of ways where like the the public face or like the state face of the Cordillera is very different from the one that the people would put out for themselves like one example is Cordillera Day actually because for progressive indigenous activists it's about commemorating the death of Makling Dulag by state forces and continuing that struggle basically and it's always in April (laughs) it's always like around the the day of his death but then the state also has its own Cordillera Day which is like a holiday that's just like we're gonna celebrate the Cordillera but it's completely depoliticized and doesn't mention any of that so there's like different identities Mm -hmm. going on. Alice and I were talking about like thesis work on the bus right here and like it looks like so much work and also um, it is so much work. Sorry. Yeah. Did you start your degree knowing that you wanted to study this? A bit. Yeah. A bit because like, I have a background as a dancer, like I grew up dancing. And so one of the things that I was interested in was the instability of dance as a format, like as a medium to be preserved. And there are a lot of traditions and rituals that involve movement in the Philippines and around the world. And so those two things kind of started coming closer together for me as I entered the program. And then it became, as I was doing the actual work of researching it, it took on also like a political aspect of how these things contribute to struggles for land and how memory practice like is political in most ways and that we should really try to uphold that political character of it. So it changed over time from what it was when I started, which was that very kind of like performative performance and preservation into more of this 
culture, politics, memory kind of thing. Yes, I had an idea, but what it ended up being was totally different from what the idea was in the beginning. Oh, that's so cool. There was somebody else in when Karen and I started the program who was really interested in that question around dance too. Yeah, and there is like work on it. But a lot of the things that I found when I was first reading stuff was how to preserve dance in different ways. So like filming or notation or things like that and not really the dealing with dance itself as the record and not the recorded copies of it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. So... Your thesis uses lots of terms. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And as we go, we might, I might do like time out to find the term. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for, for any non-archivist because, you know, you get into, you get into all of it. You get like the juridical context and records. I was like, oh yeah, here we go. But to start, mm-hmm. Karen already used a couple of them in your intro. Uh, knowledge keeping practices, living archives. Do you want to talk about yeah. those things? Yeah. Yeah, so for me, like I define them as like any any mechanism, tools, or behavior that carry like within them ideas, ethics, beliefs, memories. So pieces of any like pieces of culture, like intangible kind of culture that a community deliberately chooses to maintain and preserve and pass on. So I think that I was think actually thinking about this when I was reading the questions because I was like that idea like deliberately setting mm-hmm. it aside is something that we should be familiar with as archivists anyway because we consider records things that are received or maintained and then set aside for future reference or use right so we're making this like choice about them so it's a it's an analogous idea like we should it shouldn't be that hard for us to like wrap our heads around the idea of knowledge practices as types of records are functioning as records, although we do, like we know <laughs> the field does yes. have a problem with that. Anyway, so that's that's how I think of them. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're containers, vehicles for th- these like bits of culture. And then living archives are a way, I think, that we can talk about records that defies traditional definitions. So we think about records in like a Western context as things that are fixed, they have some sort of materiality to them. But if we're thinking about pieces of intangible culture, they, they don't have that kind of external fixity, right? But they do live inside containers, like they live inside people. <laughs> we carry them with us. And then often the way that they become records is that they're enacted through community, like through our relations with each other. And that's something that I think is very easy for people outside of archives to accept and understand. When I was talking to people in the Cordillera and I said, I study archives and this is what archives are. And they're like, oh yeah, so like Cordillera Day is definitely, it's like a living archive of like our struggles and our our memories and past events. And for them, that's like completely just it's easy to accept that. It's just mm-hmm. hard to accept that here, <laughs> or I guess in certain circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Can you talk about how and where you did your research? Mm-hmm. I did my research in different sites, like different, they're called ili, like communities or villages, 
in the Kalinga province, which is in the Cordillera region. It's a mountainous region in the north of the Philippines. And the way that I went about it is that I had to really lean on community resources in order to find my way there. I knew that in order to go where I wanted to go, I you can't just go and, and also ethically, it wouldn't be right <laughs> to just go and arrive. It wouldn't work. But the fortunate thing is that because I volunteer and work with a lot of organizations here that have very strong ties to the Philippines, I was able to get vetted by different people and that allowed me to get connected with an organization in the Cordillera called the Cordillera People's Alliance, which is like a broad-based network of like grassroots and people's organizations in the Cordillera, mainly indigenous. And I'd actually gone to the Cordillera before and like met people from the CPA before. I'd attended a conference in like 2010, which is like 10 years ago now, so long ago. But yeah, so I'd met them before. And so like I wasn't completely a stranger and also by virtue of being vetted by all of these different stages of people in different organizations, it allowed me to have that vicarious trust, I guess, so that when I went to the communities, it kind of, them knowing that, them knowing like how I came to be there and who vouched for me was enough trust that these kind of procedures set up for consent that ethics boards and other bureaucratic tools set up were kind of extraneous. It was kind of overkill for a lot of people for me to like present them (laughs) with like, this is what informed consent is according to my university, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, yeah, we, yeah, we know like you're here, you're, you're here. So that's like, (laughs) you already jumped through some hoops. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And for example, like one of the people that I know who lives here now came to Vancouver as a a refugee. He was actually targeted by militia forces and his wife was killed in in an attempt on his life. And he is like a very famous figure in the the Cordillera. He was a doctor and a very well-known political organizer. So often like when we would say, oh yeah, we got in touch with Chandu and he caught us in touch with these people, blah, blah, blah. They'd be like, oh, okay. Okay. And so it was like really these kinds of relationships that let me be there. Yeah. And in the prologue to your thesis, you also contextualized your work, I I thought, in like a really meaningful way. You shared these vignettes about Indigenous land defenders, both here in like colonial British Columbia, but also in the Philippines. Can you talk about why you chose to do that and how that thought process or way of thinking about your work affected the research you were doing? Yeah, I think it's important for most work to do this, but especially for my topic, <laughs> it it was just necessary, mm-hmm. I think, for me to show that the research and the thesis and the, even like the writing of it, like the production of it didn't happen in a vacuum. It was mm-hmm. like affected by all of these things that were happening, not just the things that I was writing about, but also the things happening while I was writing especially talking about indigenous struggles for land in the defense of like resources and for self-determination like you can't write about it and not acknowledge all of the things that are happening mm-hmm. around you you know it's like not like a theoretical thing that you're just you're, you're researching and it's like a subject of inquiry right it's like it's all around us here especially right like Canada is 
white supremacist colonial, like settler colonial state. So all around us, we see this all the time. It needs to be dealt with and you need to position yourself with it, like if you're going to be writing in it. So that's why I did that. But the reason why I chose those specific ones, mm-hmm. like this, those specific vignettes were one, what Suwiden was happening right at the time where I was like deep in my writing process. And there were a lot of similarities between the issues they were facing against the pipeline and also issues that the Filipino communities were facing back home about dams and mining. The whole free prior and informed consent situation that happens all over the world. And also the injunction that was put out here had, you know, names of people who were involved in the protest, but also like John and Jane Doe's, which mm-hmm. is actually a very common tactic and happens in the Philippines too, where it's basically like a placeholder for names that are not yet known. So it allows the government this blanket ability to target people who they don't yet know are involved. All of these things occur around the world and are very similar experiences that indigenous communities face whenever they resist these extractive agribusiness or like you know, mining, oil, etc., industries in their areas. And then also the terrorist tagging of indigenous land defenders in the Philippines happened Mm -hmm. right before I left Canada to go. All of the people who I was meeting were involved with or like were people who were on that list. So it had a direct impact on PCing and the organizations that I was I was working with. So that one was like a really important thing for me to address. It was also really related to all of these issues that are happening in the Philippines constantly, but that was like a big moment. And it, and just because it happened right before, and it was people who I knew, it was like very important to mention. And then the last one, which was actually like the killing of Makliing Dulag in the 80s, was important because that was like a really watershed moment in Cordillera activism. It like really unified a lot of the different tribes in the area around this like common Cordilleran identity. And to be frank, and I said this in the thesis as well, without the bravery of those land defenders, without the bravery of Makling Dulag, the communities I visited would not exist. They would physically be yeah. underwater, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like really situating it in time, like my research in time and place and me, wherever my relationship with that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for listeners, like, you know, if you download Lara's thesis, which is all available. It's a bit intimidating. It's pretty long. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> but those vignettes are right at the beginning and they're pretty powerful. Like if you mm-hmm. were to read a small section of it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you also outline for listeners, this is like, there were so many things in your thesis that as I was reading it, I was like, ooh, and I kept telling myself, okay, just read like part and then like skim. (laughs) And then (laughs) I was like, oh, it's too interesting. (laughs) You also had these three values that you decided on to guide your research, participation, solidarity, and social justice. It was really powerful to me how you articulated why they were so important for your research. And I feel like they also are potential avenues that people could use to guide their work in archives and libraries more generally. Not often do we hear participation, solidarity, and (laughs) social justice. We usually hear like diversity, inclusion, (laughs) and community work. (laughs) Yeah. So these are much more like politicized values that you chose. 
You want to talk about it? I think that's kind of also related to the fact that obviously there is archival research, but we don't often think about our work as as research, like as something that requires thinking about frameworks and methodologies and ethics. I, I remember someone, I think it was Ariane, something she said in one of our classes, which is like, because we don't think of it as research, like the things that we do to guide our arrangement and description, we do interviews, we, we do read sources, we do talk to people. We mm-hmm. don't think of it as research, though, and because we don't, we kind of see ourselves as outside all of those messy ethical questions, so we but never deal with them. But how writing scoping content? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that it's like it was a really useful exercise for me to to think about my methods and methodology like first and foremost and have a framework of those kind of like three important things I wanted to keep in mind. So participation was important to me because I I knew the scope of my project wouldn't it wasn't appropriate to call it participatory action research or community-based participatory research. I'm still an outsider and it was still my question that I was bringing to a community. I wouldn't really be able to say that it was resulting in transformative change for the community, which is usually what PAR aims to do. But I wanted participation to be in there as a very important factor because it tries to like confront head on, like research is very ugly history of just always viewing these communities as subjects of inquiry instead of like participants in a process where they're sharing their knowledge with you and you're like lucky to be able to witness it. At the same time, I do think that participation is something we need to really think about and like complicate because a lot of the times it also requires more labor Mm -hmm. of our participants, right? We're asking them to contribute more of themselves. Like it's kind of like for some people, it's like much easier if you're like, just give me a survey mm-hmm. and I'd fill it out. Yeah. <laughs> 10 minutes done. Yeah. <laughs> but if you are, you know, if you're like, I want to sit down with you and have a conversation that's open-ended and they're like, about what? And you're like, okay, yeah, you know, it's, it's, those, it's those things. And also you're asking for validation, right? A lot of participatory endeavors, you're supposed to like, like bring it back to the community, get their input, get their feedback, but that's also something else that they then have to do. And in my case, it was like, you know, I was traveling to communities that were like up in the mountains and it was really hard for, it's only accessible by foot, right? So it's like the ease of asking them to like come down (laughs) somewhere and like listen to me give a presentation is like not realistic. So those things are definitely things to think about in terms of participation, but working it in in other ways or ways that were easiest for people to do was really important to me. And solidarity was really important to me like as a non-Indigenous person here, but also like a non-Indigenous Filipina going back home. I don't share their experiences. I don't share their background, but there are ways that our struggles intersect and there are ways that I can support their struggles for liberation as well. So we have like these concurrent, like these places of intersection, I guess, where I can see where all of our fights connect with each other and where we can contribute to each other. So that was really important for me. For example, the way that I thought about it a lot when I was thinking through and writing my thesis was like the same forces that resulted in me being here in Canada or so-called Canada, you know, an immigrant whose family brought her here for like a better life are the same forces that are displacing indigenous peoples in the Philippines, right? It's like system of global capital, like system of like export where like our government is just interested in selling like us as people and our land to 
the highest bidder. Like they're they're connected. And so our struggles for liberation are tied together. That was one of the things that really that I really wanted to make clear. And then the social aspect, the social justice aspect of it for me was that archives aren't neutral and research isn't neutral. And so what is the purpose of your research? Like I wasn't doing research for research's sake. Mm-hmm. Like I, <laughs> I did have, <laughs> like I wanted, I, and I'm not saying, you know, writing a thesis is going to change, you know, that that would be like ridiculous to say. But at the same time, the things that, we make and the things that we produce can have a deeper purpose. You can be working towards something like the liberation of yourself and others and having that orientation in mind is useful, I think, for us because our profession always tries to tell us that we shouldn't be thinking that way at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I agree so much because I was reading your thesis and thinking about those other perspectives in archival studies or whatever I was like wow if I'd read this (laughs) if this had been the kind of material that we had like discussed in the archives courses uh, maybe my trajectory through that might have been really different (laughs) you know I was like this is like the other kind of perspective on this work that feel like I was looking for and Mm -hmm. wasn't being offered or so I think you've made a pretty amazing contribution that will probably really impact other people so yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I, honestly, I was like, I don't think anyone will ever read this. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then I found it in circle. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's really important to, I think, be very intentional with your motivations for research because I don't think it's enough to just research something just because it's interesting. Like, why do we find it interesting? And, like, how do you do that in the most ethical way? So, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. So as you went through your research process, what were the big challenges? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's clear that you had like a lot of, uh, you know, relationships, contextual knowledge going in, but you also went like pretty deep in your work. There were a lot of challenges. And I think the major ones were trying to deal with like the, the cult, like it was a very real, well, I don't know if culture shock is the right word, but there's like a dissonance between the way that we're taught to approach research here, even with mechanisms that are supposed to make our practices more ethical or to get us to think about interacting with like different cultural ideas of like research and like consent and all of that stuff. It, it really doesn't prepare you at all for actually like trying to undertake that research. So there was obviously there's like lots of things that I would do differently. I think I would, for example, in my Breb next time, like my um, my ethics review, I would definitely try more alternative means of like gaining the types of uh, consent that they ask for. I would try not to use like forms at all actually Mm -hmm. basically because a lot of the communities that I went to obviously a lot of their practices were primarily oral those things aren't like it's not a binary right like you know orality like textuality exists side by side all the time but still the means for that kind of approval and like welcoming is 
based on your in-person relationship and interaction and conversation, not the giving of this form. I, I almost felt like having those processes in place like presented a barrier automatically right at the beginning of a relationship when it should have been open. Like it kind of mm-hmm. shut down conversation that wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened that way if I had just talked. Yeah. And so I would have put more effort into really asserting that that was the way I wanted to do it instead of following kind of like the examples that they give and like kind of the the standard Mm -hmm. that they expect. Because, yeah, I think that would have it, it just it just changes, right? Like it puts up that kind of like, oh, you're this person and I'm this person and we're going to have this kind of interaction, which is like not what not ideal. (laughs) So like Mm -hmm. those kinds of moments, I think, were really difficult. But trying to trying to do research for like UBC, like as an institution and what they ask for is completely different than what would make people more comfortable in some situations, <laughs> right? Totally. She told me, like, you have the wrong tools mm-hmm. that you're given from the university, and but then you're coming from the universe. And, like, I feel like a lot of what you're saying, like, this is what I was struggling a lot with some of my classes this term with research. It feels like even though I do have a relationship with these people, I'm coming this time as a mm-hmm. UBC researcher. And it was very, even though I was like, okay, how can I be not extractive? It felt like I was just doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's kind of uncomfy. Yeah, it's really weird because research assumes that you are not a part of the community you are mm-hmm. wor- like working with, right? It, it always assumes that there are, there are people who are studied and people who do the studying and they're mutually exclusive and, and then, you like, cannot the transaction be. happens and then you leave and now you've got knowledge and yeah so I think some of the things some of the ways that the university like those structures tries to make that relationship better don't necessarily work for relationships that are closer or at least different from that kind of insider out like more nuanced than the insider outsider mm-hmm. kind of dynamic mm-hmm. yeah What did you enjoy most about the research process? I really, I mean, I'm from the Philippines. I was born there and I've been back many times, but I'm not from the Cordillera and I'd never gone that deep before. And I think like being welcomed into these communities that were like super, super rural, like I would never, well, not that I would never ever have that opportunity because you never know. There's lots of... There's actually lots of opportunities for people, Filipinos, to integrate with rural communities, especially if you're part of like people's organizations that are like doing work there. But it's still not terribly common. And so the opportunity to meet people where they lived and get to talk to them was like like I I don't know if I'd ever be, you know, lucky enough to do that again. Yeah. It was just a completely different slice of the Philippines than I'd ever experienced before. Yeah, sounds pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. 
one of the conclusions uh, in your thesis is that record-keeping practices, this is a quote, record-keeping practices of these indigenous communities is inextricably linked with political struggles for the defense of ancestral lands and for self-determination. That's on page triple I. How does this relate to indigenous sovereignty and indigenous record-keeping practices here or in, you know, in other contexts? Where I think that there is a lot of those links is Mm -hmm. that attacks on land and attacks on land defenders are attacks on people and culture, right? So if you look at cultural preservation through that lens, then it means that it automatically gains a political dimension because in order to fight for cultural preservation that is based on land, that is land-based, you need that land. Cultural resurgence and political resurgence need to be tied. And I think Leanne Simpson says it really well in her book, as we have always done, that the depoliticization of like cultural resurgence initiatives is really easily co-opted into like this like state narratives of reconciliation or mm-hmm. you know diversity, representation, like cultural inclusion, that kind of stuff, because it doesn't pose a threat. It doesn't pose a threat to the Canadian state if you have things that are taken out of the context of of land struggles and self-determination. But as we know, those things are inextricably tied. Like they can't be separated. You need land to have land-based practices. So I think, and it's, yeah, you know, it's true around the world. So here for us, I think the implication of that is when we talk about cultural preservation, when we talk about documentation of these practices, when we talk about supporting record keeping around these kinds of practices, we need to foreground the fact that it's based on these foundational struggles for land and sovereignty and self-determination. They're not, they're not separate. So, so all of our conversations about it should be political. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in your, in your thesis, you also cite Tuck and Yang's work on decolonization is not a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I think about it a lot with library and archival institutions here, many of which are part of the state and sitting on (laughs) land that is not theirs, that's, you know, belongs to, you know, the indigenous peoples of whatever territory or, you know, land that they're. And it's not something that I hear talked about when I hear people talking about, like, truth and reconciliation or those kinds of initiatives that are very much this cultural lens of have an indigenous storyteller or have, you know, materials added to the collection or, you know, programming, mm-hmm. something like that. But there's not really a question of like, okay, the resources that this institution has and benefits from. Yeah. Are actual things <laughs> with, yeah. you know, implications. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, and that's where I think a lot of people's disillusionment with conversations about decolonization and Mm -hmm. indigenization come in because it's like if you aren't bringing that question in it is this like shallow interpretation of those things Mm -hmm. and most often we get like the shallow (laughs) interpretations of those things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting stuff Okay, let's dive into some of the heart of your thesis. (laughs) I mean, all this stuff you've been talking about is at the heart of your thesis, too. But I kind of said this earlier. 
I was feeling overwhelmed by archival theory. And then as I got into your thesis, I was like, oh, actually she's doing something else really interesting, which is breaking apart these questions and shifting from what is a record to how does something function as a record. Can you help us like tackle some of these things, like what these differences are, like what you wrote in your thesis? Yeah. I talk about definitions a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I think I start the chapter on the Badong and on Cordillera Day with like definitions of what the definitions were given for a record and definitions for archives. And then like segue into different people within archives who've tried to like push those boundaries. And then eventually just being like, maybe we don't have to yeah. <laughs> really listen to these at all. Because I also didn't want to have like this like one-to-one equation where I mm-hmm. said this is this because, you know, diplomatically it has all of these things, you know. Mm. And there were a lot of archives articles that I was influenced by that I used. I guess I could start with like the record part of it, like sure. the badong part of it. Sure. I looked at Shauna McCraner's article a lot. I forget the title of it, but she's... We'll link to it. Yeah, but she's talking... She's basically talking about how can you understand a record in one juridical context within another and saying that, you know, you really can't create that one-to-one relationship. But then also thinking about Pillup Truck's, like, article where she says... You know, things can function as records if they do these things within that society or are seen to fill, fulfill this purpose. So I kind of used her conceptualization of how a record functions and then tried to think about how a badong functions within Kalinga tribes. The, I guess the main thing that we think about when we think about records, well, we think about records a lot, I guess, but the main kind of sticking point is that whole idea of, like, fixity, mm-hmm. like... It's a material object. It has a physical container. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like a tape. <laughs> With some stuff written <laughs> on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we take that away, it actually becomes much easier to think of lots of things as records, mm-hmm. right? Because those functions are the same, right? So like Polipchik says, like, it was spontaneously and organically created. It ha- it was, like took part in a transaction. It's like enacted through the will of the people taking part in that transaction. And the Badong really does function that way, right? So it's, it's a uh, socio-political system that has its own rules and laws. People call it like the constitution and bylaws. And it's formalized through ceremony, so through an actual event, which is like when so a badong i guess the translation of it is a peace pact and it's traditionally between two tribes and they negotiate and present it through this multi-day process and it's also formalized in a quote-unquote document called the pagda but that document you know back in the day it was just oral it was it was just like presented to the communities by word of mouth and then they would remember it and then those rules would be passed on by word of mouth. Nowadays, of course, it is written down, but that's where the that distinction of fixity really doesn't really make sense to me because if you're going to consider this piece of paper, the record, the piece of paper is just a copy of what had occurred. So why can't that, the original, because we talk be a lot the about record. Like, original and copies. Yeah. yeah. Like the so this piece of paper is just for like me, like the copy of something that 
lives in people's like minds and memories and is given weight mm-hmm. by the by community members themselves. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was enough, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, there's examples of that. It's not just like an indigenous cultures thing, right? The description you just gave brought to mind for me like a wedding, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. this thing happens, whether you're not, you not, you like sign the yeah. forms that you submit to city hall or, or whatever. Yeah, and th- that's very true because like there's also other examples that I've used, like you know, for example, like a handshake mm-hmm. to seal a contract is also this kind of this, this act mm-hmm. that you, that, that parties participate in which used to signify that like that was enough mm-hmm. to be evidence of something you know something occurring and we kind of like forget that that is so that was so much a part of our activity you know important activity as as like in in like that western archival sphere mm-hmm. but there are sources out there that talk about it i think i cite like clanchy and he was speaking about france like europe ages ago and how there was like this switch over to like more a literate mindset when previously we had been used to conducting our activities in more of that kind of like behavioral oral way it isn't it's definitely not like limited to Mm -hmm. these contexts i think it really goes back something i do remember from those archival classes and maybe one of you can help me with the details of this but to you know a lot of archival theory as we studied it at ubc goes to this like shift mm-hmm. to bureaucracy yeah in europe right and and a increasing control of the state in people's daily lives and like the minutia and details of what people are doing and when they're doing and controlling that and controlling capital and which are things that indigenous people are being subjected to by colonial states all the time as well hmm mm-hmm. yeah so it really doesn't like when you look at it that though in those ways you're like why do we why is there such a problem with <laughs> <laughs> it just like, continues to make less and less sense. Yeah. Yeah. But we continue to teach archives this way. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk about like what is an archive? What do they what are archives supposed to do and how does Cordillera Day illustrate, challenge or disrupt how the way we've studied or been taught what archives are supposed to do, what they're supposed to mm-hmm. be like. Yeah. I mean, we always talk about archives as like the place, so like the physical building where things are housed. And we also talk about them as like these groupings of records by the same creator who is always an individual or an organization. Which is already, which already doesn't fit <laughs> a lot of ideas of like, community archives, for example. So, Cordillera Day w- would be much more in that vein. In so far as there's multiple creators, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just like this idea of like one singular entity that you can like tie copyright to or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's it's multiple people and multiple groups coming together. And if you wanted to think about it as a community archive, which you totally could if you wanted to it would be like andrew flynn's idea of like a politically motivated archive because it's an event that is specifically about remembering past struggle not just to commemorate it but also to continue it into the future for future generations and so 
there's quite the person who I drew on the most in terms of archival theory for this was Jeanette Bastian because she's been one of the only people who looked at events as archives so like there's a societal provenance of these things and that occurs in these moments when people come together around an event around a celebration there's really not that much else that's been done like that i know jennifer sent me she sent me a thesis of someone who did a similar kind of thing studying like day of the dead parades in the united states as types of living archives but there really isn't that much of it (laughs) so i had to look outside archives for a lot of other things I could draw on. And one of the things that I found really useful was performance studies. So if you haven't already read her, Diana Taylor's Archives and the Repertoire is a really good source because she's basically like looking at all of these memory practices, orality, uh, movement, ritual, ceremony, as keepers of memory. And they're, and they're performed, they fulfill a function based on their performance and in action with others, like as a performance. Those are kind of like the two works that I really drew on in order to see how Cordillera Day could really function as an archive. Because it does, like, it does a whole bunch of things, and the way that it does them is through certain what Taylor would call acts or activities. So, you know, how does it memorialize McLean Dulag? Well, they have songs, obviously. They also have like plays, like people's theater, where they'll reenact these moments of his life. And they'll also use those plays as ways to tell their contemporary struggles as well. There'll also be lots of emphasis on mass action. So like going into the streets, creating a visible presence, disrupting this like normal everyday flow of life for the performance of this act that contributes to like this whole vehicle of Cordillera Day. So there's a lot actually that I, there's a lot of acts that I go through for Cordillera Day, but if it helps, like a a simple way to think about it is that Cordillera Day is just the vehicle. You know, it's just, it's just the container for all of these different kinds of, if you want to think about them this way, records. And those records are ones that are performed they're ones that take place through this non-textual, quote-unquote, kind of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cordillera Day sounds pretty amazing in your description, in your thesis. Like a pretty incredible yeah. event to attend. In yeah. terms of, yeah, like the the goals of the day and, I don't know, like the emotion, like what people are putting into it. Yeah, it's really, it is really amazing. It's like 36 years now, or like next year, will be its 36th anniversary. So the 36th anniversary of uh, McLean's death. Yeah, it takes a lot of work. Uh, The year that I went, 2018, it was like a centralized celebration. So instead of it taking place within a community, it took place in Baguio, which is like the biggest city in the region mostly because because like with the the um the terrorist prescription list there was like a lot of attention and pressure and so it the organizers thought that it might be better to have it in like a bigger urban center instead of like in a smaller community Mm -hmm. like it'd be easier to kind of 
keep an eye and protect everyone and, and that kind of stuff. But ordinarily, it does take place in the mountains or in a far-flung community. And what happens is the whole community comes together to create the infrastructure that will then house everyone. And so that's why it like creates this community feeling because everyone's contributing to like raising the structure where you're going to sleep and like raising the structure where you're going to eat and everyone's cooking together and like washing up together and it's a lot of people <laughs> in one place and I'd really I really would like to go back and and take part in a celebration that does occur in in a in a village but I'm still I'm really glad that I got to go to this one What can others learn from what you found? What do you hope that people can take away from this conversation, whether or not they, like, you know, read your thesis in full or not? And also, like, what are you still thinking about afterwards? Well, I hope one thing that people can take away is sort of just, I guess, not get too invested in these colonial hangups that Archives has. Like, there's... There's so much discussion every time. I feel like it happens every few years about, you know, or even like sooner, like about neutrality <laughs> or about is this actually a record? Is this actually an archive? And it, it gets tiring and it's a distraction, I think, honestly. You're always, whenever I look on the listserv and it's another blow up, I think, okay, it's always the same people who are saying these things. And then it is always the same people who then have to like stand up and say something against it. And it's like, you know, that's a lot of work for them. It's not a space most people feel safe in anymore. And sometimes it's just like, they don't matter. Like at the end of the day, you kind of have to be like, it doesn't matter and they don't matter. Like you can actually, we you, we can do what we want in a lot of ways. Like sometimes I think it's like, we have to stop talking about whether we can call something this or whether we can call something that and just like do it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like and like just go ahead and, and do it because the rest of it is you're falling into the trap of having to justify yourself all the time. And sometimes I think, yeah, it's a distraction. You just don't have to justify yourself. You just have to just do it, which is like, obviously, it's like that's a very easy thing to say and a very hard thing to do. But if you have the power to do it in whatever position you have, for example, change a vocab, like a vocab term in your like library catalog or like do any of those things. Like just do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a really good quote in your thesis that I thought summed this idea up really well. You say, the study suggests that flexible and social justice oriented interpretations of archival theory, such as were applied during the study, could open possibilities for archivists to better meet their custodial effective obligations and I was like yeah that makes so much sense like why <laughs> yeah. why do you think do you have any thoughts on why there's so much resistance towards pushing like I guess the boundaries of what a record means and kind of imagining more like why are we so hung up on this is what a record is and mm. oh I don't know oh, all of I have thoughts and they're all just like speculation. <laughs> mostly, mostly my thoughts are a lot of it, I think, is rooted in our profession being a profession, like being a practical endeavor 
in which like people have to like actually do these things right they actually have to like maintain records they have to define things they have to classify and they have to organize and so that stuff is a lot easier when there's these kind of like strict boundaries about what they are and I think some people are like well that's so you know it's like so floofy it's so like theoretical like how practically would you actually do it and like that's one area where they think there's a lot of resistance then the other one is just that one of the questions that you asked was about why are archives so invested in white supremacy and colonialism and it's because archives in this sense like the way that we've been taught about them as you said they originated in bureaucratic institutions which propped up the functions of the state and these states by and large are imperialist states whose like mission is to subjugate like wide swaths of people for their own gain so it's like okay yes of course they're a tool to prop that up so of course they're invested in these kinds of like oppressive structures i mean that's kind of what i found when i was talking about the philippines the national archives in the philippines was a colonial construct like it was left behind by spain and then later added to and contributed to by the americans and it was really it's like a tool to surveil and control indigenous populations and construct that relationship between Spain and the Philippines and then to like not only conceive of the population of the Philippines as a collective under control but also to exert control on individuals we were like measured not only in our like collective numbers but also like through censuses and things like that as individual people so all of these things are what an archive is created to do. It makes sense. (laughs) I mean, it does make sense in that way why we have to struggle so hard against that tendency. And I think that people are scared. I think people get really defensive about other ways of knowing or because it represents a shift in those power relations and in people's security, which they've propped up by as you said, subjugating others. And it's pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all, I always think about this though, like we all came to archives and libraries for a reason. And the reason was not that. I mean, we all people. So, so like, what are we going to do about it? I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like the question at the end of the day is, how are we going to challenge our profession or our discipline to do better? Yeah, and I think it. I think you did some pretty incredible work because you you offer pathways for that. Like you 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 do as you said at the very beginning of this. Like your thesis leaves certain questions open, but I think a lot of the questions that you leave open are questions where you're pretty explicit about like it's not my place to say this thing or that thing like you know you were in a community that's not yours and you know doing research about practices that you know it's not Mm -hmm. up to you to decide how they're category categorized or anything like that um but you but you do you leave some like pretty pretty clear like avenues for people to think about like what if we applied these lenses to our work or what if we changed what questions we ask or Mm -hmm. who we ask them of and i'm i'm deeply impressed by this thesis (laughs) (laughs) i mean i had high expectations knowing you in advance of reading it but it still blew me away (laughs) yeah you want to add 
there's a lot of places this could go, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it would be great to see more um, opportunities for students to do research or assignments outside of what we're given or what we see. Maybe examples of that don't really exist at Slays, but there are places out there where I think that they're doing a little, like doing stuff that's at least a little bit more interesting. I don't remember, I think it was Michelle Caswell. I think it was an article about a first year course in an archival program, but it was an article about an assignment they had to do. And it was basically like being split into groups and each group was given a record. But it was like things from different places that functioned as records Mm -hmm. pretty much. And then giving that the kind of like research and narrative weight that we would to other traditional archives that we see. And I feel like we don't have that at Slays. It'd be really interesting if we (laughs) did. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we could be doing other things and not that those things would necessarily like change the world but they would do something i think although i guess you know you'd still have to deal with like the overwhelming whiteness of <laughs> archives and <laughs> and there's only so much you can do if you're not also creating a profession that is open welcoming and attractive to people to join and that doesn't make them feel unsafe like i think that there's a lot of like structural stuff that needs to happen not just in archives and libraries but like academia as a whole for any sort of meaningful transformation if that's even possible to occur Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well we'll ask you about that another time that's a big question So much for your time. Like, yeah, if you if folks me. if folks want to read your thesis, it's on Circle. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. Do you do any public social media things or places <laughs> you want to send people to follow you or learn more? If people want to learn about the organizing work I do with um, youth and student like Filipino youth and students at UBC, you can go to the Facebook group. It's just sulong.ubc, and then we also have an Instagram which is sulong.ubc. And that's like, you can get an idea of different campaigns and different like educational things that we're running. Thank you again so much. Yeah. We can be found on Twitter at organizingpod. That's organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com. And our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com. Bye. Bye.